0: Good morning. Are you there?
1: Yes. Good morning.
0: Okay, uh, everyone. Welcome to the the Warren Letter. Uh, I'm your host, Russell Warren. I'm the author of the Warren Letter newsletter. It's a financial newsletter that you can uh, sign up for. Uh, it comes out twice a week. Uh, you can sign up at the Warren Letter com. And today, today we're doing this podcast with a, you know a very interesting backdrop. A very uh, uh, you know geopolitical heavy analysis day, and um, luckily with us we have Paul. Paul is the writer of the Serious Report, which is uh, something that I've been following, and I've been following his Twitter uh, for years now. And what I like about the Serious Report and about Paul's analysis is that he's probably one of the first ones to discuss this uh, financial alliance between China. And Russia and how they're working to de-dollarize is basically the way I term it. And so, without any further ado, I just want to introduce uh, Paul from the Serious Report. Uh, thank you so much for being on.
1: Oh, it's an absolute <clears throat> excuse me pleasure. So glad to be on.
0: Okay, now Paul, can you just give us a little bit of a mm-hmm. background of yourself, how you started the Serious Report, what your what, how you got mm-hmm. into this.
1: Right. Well, I mean, originally I was actually an academic, I was a physicist, um, which it sounds like how did you end up here? But um and I had a very brief academic career and then I moved into to finance, which was working in a whole bunch of banks doing all sorts of things. And kind of was a bit disillusioned kind of two thousand and six, seven when I kind of came out in the, in the bank. So I worked in and said, look, we're going to have a global financial crisis. So I don't know when. Nobody had listened. And of course, the rest history in 2008. So, kind of post 2008, I thought, right, time to leave, do something different. So I moved into kind of worked with, with a friend and we work, worked in kind of mergers and acquisitions. A lot of it actually was ironically in the gold and silver space, but not exclusively. And and then kind of just carried on doing that. Then I had boring people. There was a whole sort of lot of issues with my family, with health issues and subsequently bereavements. And I went, well, I can't dedicate myself to doing that as a job. Because if I can't do something properly, I don't want to do it. Because it's not fair to, to the people I work with or to the people I work for. So under 2016 came up with the idea, okay, I've got all this um, financial experience and geopolitical experience and understanding over a long period of time. So I thought, well, okay, maybe I can add something to to what is actually going on. So the original plan was to put it out for free. We couldn't monetize it because we kept being demonetized. So eventually it became a subscription-based service, which we've done for effectively five and a half years. And the object of that was to, to lay out how the world was rapidly changing, because most people in the West didn't really have any perception that, you know, the world was changing. But there's a lot of kind of events prior to to when we started in 2016, which, and in fact, part of that encompasses what happened in Ukraine in the Maidan in 2014. And the idea was, OK, we want to present the picture to the world of what's really happening geopolitically in terms of the financial system economics and not just obviously focusing on the West, but what I called the multipolar world, which effectively was this alternative that was actually born out of discussions that the Chinese and the Russians had in the late 90s and early 2000s with friends of mine who I've called the architects of what I is the real reset, not all this World Economic Forum nonsense, which for me is, has no basis in reality. And I think we've done a reasonable job at laying out what's happened subsequently. And uh, and what's happening in Ukraine, of course, is no surprise to us in terms of our understanding of what happened in the past. Okay, it's been a major escalation of events, particularly since sort of December time, but there was, it was obviously sort of clear to me from prior sort of September time onwards that the U.S. was pushing for something. And I've made the point that the U.S. Has, has effectively, in a roundabout way, been in and influencing Ukraine since 2014. So why was it suddenly a big problem for the U.S. in terms of trying to convince their allies that there was an imminent Russian invasion, bearing in mind we've had the Western media reporting on and off since 2016 of 100,000 Russian troops on the border, massing, waiting for an invasion. So initially, ironically, the Ukrainians, uh, Zelensky, didn't even believe them, thought, no, this is nonsense. And no one particularly took it seriously, but it was the point kept being hammered month after month. And obviously, we'll go into some detail once we've gone through what happened in 2014 as to why we are where we are today.
0: Yeah, no, and it is uh, it is interesting that you've been, uh, you know, tweeting about this and writing about this for a long time before it was on anyone's radar. Um, I kind of picked it up probably at the end of October, beginning of November, and I said, hey, th- this looks like a volatile situation. Um, but, you know, that's very late to the game. So let's let's bring it back to... 2014, can you just kind of provide a, a, a backdrop of, of how, how this started in 2014 and then kind of how we got to where we are today, which is it looks like um, a full scale invasion. It seems early to say whether or not Russia is going to try to uh, hold uh, the territory they seized. But let's let's start with 2014 and basically the beginning of how this latest uh, situation you know took off.
1: Yeah, effectively what the issue was is the US and and NATO and, and certain allies have long since coveted the idea that you know, we can absorb Ukraine into NATO and also by extension into the European Union. I mean, this is, shouldn't be any surprise, particularly given, of course, how uh, the, we've had various phases of, of more and more NATO. Uh, nations joining nato and then kind of pushing further and further east like the baltic states etc poland the problem was
0: hey paul you seem to have cut out for a second are you still there Hey, Paul.
1: Can you oh. hear me OK?
0: Yeah, you just cut out for a second. You
1: can go ahead. Please. Oh, OK. It might be because my screen um, locks Also, be <laughs> OK, I'll keep an eye on that, make sure that I'm aware that that doesn't keep happening. OK, so I'm not sure what I cut out. But if we go back to sort of the period around 2013, 2014, Yanukovych, who was the uh, Ukrainian president, Had made it very clear that he wanted to effectively rotate east. He wasn't interested in joining the European Union. He wasn't interested in Ukraine ever having any aspirations to be part of NATO, and in fact wanted to almost form alliances with Russia. So, from the United States' perspective, that was completely unacceptable, and and therefore, I'm sorry, whether people disagree or not, it's it's a statement of fact that the U.S engineered the Maidan to remove Yanukovych and effectively put some sort of U.S. puppet government in place who would therefore be amenable to having uh, Ukraine eventually join NATO and join the European Union. Okay, it's it hasn't happened as yet, and there's a whole bunch of internal problems. I mean, to put to say Ukraine's a failed state would be an understatement. It's a complete economic failure, financial failure. The corruption there is off scale and there's all manner of disgusting things that go on there that we will avoid discussing because I don't know the sensibilities of people listening. But let's put it this way. It is not a nice country to live in. And I'm not saying it wasn't happening prior to this, but there's a lot of concerns in the European Union about whether, you know, apart from its economic and financial position, whether they'd want it part of the European Union. But setting that aside, Obviously, we had the Maidan. And then subsequently, uh, unfortunately, in the West, doesn't tend to discuss this. There are very strong far right influences inside uh, Ukraine. And the perspective was that when the Maidan happened in the Donbass region, which is very strongly Russian, Russian speaking, that they were very concerned that when Yanukovych was removed. The risk was that, 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 you know, that then they would be subject to suppression and all manner of things because they're Russian and Russian speaking. So, therefore, we had this long protracted war effectively down the contact line in, between in Donbass, meaning Lugansk and Donetsk. And there was very serious uh, sort of uh, conflicts in 2014 15. And ever since then, it's been sporadic, but there has been a lot of shelling going on. And I'm not saying once, you know, that uh, the, the Russian separatists, as they called, have not been responsible for, for shelling in the opposite direction. But there has certainly been a huge amount of what you would term war crimes committed, where basically houses were shelled, people you know, were killed, families were killed. Completely unnecessarily, of course, this isn't part of any conflict between, you know, the Ukrainian forces and Russian separatist forces. So it's been kind of simmering on and off. There was also the issue that effectively Ukraine strangled uh, Donetsk and Lugansk economically and tried to cut them off. And only for Russian aid, et cetera, the the people in Donbass quite literally would have starved to death. That's how bad things were. So this thing's been kind of simmering on and off for a long period of time. There was obviously the Minsk agreement signed, which uh, the Ukrainians signed. And it's worth noting, the Russians were never required to, to obey or observe the Minsk agreements. They're not part of the Minsk agreements. They're not party to it. That's a big illusion in the West. The, the Ukrainians were supposed to do this and by extension, those in the Donbass region were, they will be given a degree of autonomy in Donbass. They will be able to have elections and Ukrainians sign this, but the Americans told them don't under any circumstances obey the, the Minsk agreements. And as we know, okay, there's, there's there was the very controversial issue where um, Russia obviously or Crimea effectively became part of Russia. The reality is it's predominantly Russian. There was a, ref, a legitimate referendum the people wanted to be part of Russia. This was because of the fact of the overthrow of Yanukovych. So, okay, strategically Crimea is a very important part of what was Ukraine on the Black Sea. And there is controversy with that because there's an argument, well, you know, it's one, it's, you know, you talk about this indivisibility indivisibility clause, which effectively means, and that's something Russia's made a big play of today, which effectively says that the security of any state is is inseparable from others in the region. So you could arguably say, well, the mere fact it became part of of, um, of Russia, was therefore posing a threat to, to Ukraine, although, of course, Ukraine does share a border with Russia. But parking the whole issue to do with uh, Crimea, Over, obviously, a long period of time, there's been no settlement. And it became, started to become a major problem uh, for Russia when they, from their perspective, started to see significant amounts of of evidence that there was obviously the West was arming, uh, they say, non-lethal weapons for Ukraine and financing them. And they started to get concerns with respect to the fact that there might have been some military build-up. There was these kind of claims, well, don't worry from the West. They're not going to be a member of NATO. It's not going to happen. But as can always happen, that can change in the blink of an eye. And this might not be a popular comment to make, but uh, Russia doesn't trust the United States. And a lot of the world doesn't. i not, not talking about their allies because the U.S. reneges on every agreement it signs. So even if there was some agreement in place, in principle, then and saying, "Well, they won't become part of NATO," the concern was they're going to push east and become part of NATO. So,
0: Paul, it looks like you uh, you cut out again. I don't know if your phone uh, locked up. We'll give him a second to uh, get his phone back on. All right. While we're waiting for Paul to get back on, I just wanted to uh, give kind of the most up-to-date on the situation here. Um, from what okay? on, um, on. Oh, there you are, Paul. Yeah, you just yeah. I don't off. know
1: what happened. I I got cut off. Anyway, so so the issue is obviously sort of the back end of last year. You know, Russia began to to get extremely concerned. Okay, and there's, there's two sides to this story. From their perspective, they they were getting concerned about the military build up. They were claiming they had intelligence that proved that the U.S. was was starting to put uh, kind, of, kind of bases in place, that there was potential for missile technology. And that's when they came out and said to the West, we need to have some security assurances, which effectively boiled down to some very simple things. Ukraine will not ever become part of NATO. You won't put U.S. forces, although, of course, there's... There were US forces in a so-called training capacity and US mercenaries, etc., inside Ukraine. But essentially, you're not going to put US forces in Ukraine. You're not going to build US bases in Ukraine. And and in no way, shape, or form, you're going to entertain any idea from from Russia's perspective that you're going to be able to to kind of have this creeping encroachment through Ukraine onto to Russia's borders. The other thing, of course, that is a legitimate concern is that there's old relics from the Soviet days where it would potentially be possible, in, in inverted commas, for, for nuclear weapons to be, to be put into Ukraine a lot easier than perhaps other nations. And the sort of technology would exist that they could activate those very relatively quickly. But let's park that for a minute because there's something that happened at the Munich Security Conference, uh, which which really triggered where we are today. So on that basis, they wanted reassurances. The Americans and NATO alliance came back and really didn't address them. They started talking about intermediate uh, range missiles, which uh, which yeah is a good discussion point, but nothing to do with what was actually the concerns of the Russians. So we've had this long protracted process of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, Russia kept saying, look, these are red lines. If you cross these red lines, then they talked about a technical military response, which nobody understood what it meant. Well, certainly not the West didn't understand what it meant. But it got to the point where, obviously, tensions were building, There was a lot of stories about Russia having an invasion force on the border, which actually isn't true. Yes, they had a lot of military personnel dotted around, but they were doing regular exercises. Yes, they may have been 50 kilometers from the border or 100 kilometers from the border, but there wasn't an invasion force. And I made the point that Russia wouldn't invade unless Red lines were crossed now at this point you 're not going to expect to see a red line cross where suddenly uh, nato 's going to say well ukraine 's joined or, uh, or they 're going to start putting bases in there or missile technology etc that wasn 't the issue. What was also the issue is in sort of the time when all these tensions were were being raised there was more and more hard work and Ukrainian personnel moving to the contact line between the Russian separatists and obviously the Ukrainian forces in Donbass. And Russia always made the point, look, if you have a major assault again on Donbass, then if you attack Russians, which they regard themselves as Russians predominantly, then that's a red line. If you And it became increasingly obvious that, that there was some provocation coming from the Ukrainian side. And we started to suddenly see this escalation in, in provocation and shelling going on at a level we'd not seen for quite a few years. And it was at that point, of course, that initially Russia just held off and didn't actually do anything or didn't respond in any way to that provocation. From their perspective, but then Zelensky went off to the Munich Security Conference and and sort of came back with the idea that well we want nuclear weapons in in uh, Ukraine and uh, and that were that was the minute when effectively from Russia's perspective you really have crossed a red line if you're starting to talk like that and wanting to abandon agreements that were made previously at Bucharest in two thousand and eight, then, sorry, the that's the red line. The fact that, you know, that the Bucharest Agreement should be revised and Ukraine should be nuclear rearmed, the fact he made these statements, whether it was only in his from his perspective, that was the red line crossed. And that's the point where obviously we'd had this situation where Russia uh, signed this cooperation agreement with Lugansk and Donetsk, which involved things like, you know, if you if you're then, if you require us because of of Ukrainian provocations or a Ukrainian or all, all-out war effectively against Donbass, then we'll come to your aid. And there was also financial implications to this military cooperation, etc. And uh, and it was very obvious <clears throat> that once they signed that. It was only really then a matter of time from the Russian perspective is then you've crossed red lines. It's not like Russia was just going to march in with for no reason or at least from their perspective, justifiable reasons to invade Ukraine. There had to be a justifiable reason. Now, some may say there was a trap set for, for the Ukrainians. Well, maybe, maybe not. But the point was the moment uh, Donbass said to the Russians, we need your assistance. That was the trigger when, then that uh, effectively he was saying, okay, there's going to be an invasion. I mean, of that, that was irrefutable. And then Putin came out, made his statement, and uh, on uh, an address to to the Russian people, in fact, he said, yes, now <clears throat> we are going to, well, effectively declare war on on Ukraine.
0: Now, now, Paul, and, now Paul, sorry, yeah, I'm just gonna, I just want to ask you. A little no, please to- do. Um so you know uh on this podcast we obviously we don't i don't take sides i think a lot of americans at least the ones i know feel that it's not our fight it's a problem between the russians and the ukrainians and i think Uh the average average american just wants to stay out of it of course everyone wants to see peace in the world um did you listen to putin's uh speech i believe it was on february 21st that was the, the kind of the speech you were alluding to that that hour long speech where he' laid out kind of the history of of Ukraine and Russia
1: Yes, I mean he was extremely critical of the formation of the Soviet Union and the fact of all the mistakes that were made you know during the Soviet era what and and you know that is absolutely true. there were huge historical mistakes made. Also, he makes reference to the fact, of course, of the the collapse of the the Soviet Union and how, you know, Russia, as it became, gave, you know, back all, like, you know, we had reunification of Germany and all the, you know, the the Baltic Republics and Ukraine, et cetera, all given back as independent nations. And and we're not going to go through the whole history of that. But yes, he, he, sorry, go on.
0: Yes, what I wanted to ask you was, so, I, and I think you kind of alluded to it, there, so do you think there was some legitimacy to some of the points that uh, Putin was making uh, on, in that speech?
1: Yes, there is. I mean, but obviously we have to put this in context. A lot of these decisions were made you know, when the Soviet Union came into existence in, well, effectively 100 years ago. Uh, but yeah, there's there's no doubt that as that the nation state it is now. Ukraine is a is a real mess because, you know, I mean, I'm I don't I'm no historian, so I'm not gonna go back through going back through hundreds of years what happened with Ukraine, but but it's clearly got enormous problems. And I made the point nearly three years ago that at that point it's inevitable Ukraine will be broken up. Where and Donbass is one obvious um, issue. I think the, that Western Ukraine could form another separate country, for example. There's just all these kind of ideological problems that exist inside the nation. So yes, there's legitimacy to what he's saying. And in fact, he's been very deeply critical, Putin, of the role the Soviet Union, or as he put it, the Bolsheviks were in terms of the, the, the issues of where part of the lands were given, given up which were Russia, which they should never have done, and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it was fundamentally a major problem in history, and that's quite a bold statement to actually for for a Russian leader to, to be that critical and savage about um, the, the role that was played in history. But he also, of course, did make the point that, you know, in, in a sort of post-Soviet Union world and when Russia just became Russia, how it cooperated, and worked in terms of giving, you know, all the nations back and, uh, and then settling all the old Soviet debt, which was about $100 billion by, and they paid all that off in 2017. And then how Ukraine was supposed to cooperate and help by giving some of the assets back. And this was an agreement whilst in 94, and they never reneged on it. And so there was historical problems. Going back with regards to Ukraine, and there's no doubt—not just even in the last eight years—that Ukraine has always kind of play the the West off against the East. Going to the West, well, if you don't give us this, then you know we might just rotate east and 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 play ball solely with Russia. So it's it's a very complicated situation to have arrived where we are today. But but yes, there's no doubt Putin was making some very strong points about the historical context, because it was important from his perspective to lay out the history of why a lot of the problems that happen today are caused in history.
0: And Okay, and and so now that Russia has uh, gone forward, um, uh, it looks like with uh, a full-scale invasion or at least a full-scale attempt to dismantle uh, Ukrainian military and infrastructure, um, the response by the West has essentially been um, sanctions, uh, sanctions on uh, specific Russian banks, Russian uh, what they call oligarchs, um, things like that. But now, I you know, from reading your report and reading your tweets, it looks like Russia has been preparing for that for a long time and uh, have found ways to where that really won't hurt them as much as people may think. Um, I believe the exact quote from Putin was, "Quote: Russia doesn't give a shit about sanctions." Can you discuss that? Oh, Paul, did you cut off again? Okay, while well, we we'll wait for Paul to get back on, uh, just kind of no. Here a... I am. Oh, there you are. Did you hear?
1: No my? idea why. Anyway. Yeah, going back just briefly, obviously Russia, yeah, invaded. It took them literally 90 minutes. They rendered the Ukraine's entire military capability in a, that was military infrastructure, air defense systems, aviation airfields, using high-precision weapons, and it's very clear they're moving nor, sort of from north to south um, and east to west, and we've heard various statements that, you know, they're not, Practically on the, the doorstep of Kiev itself, what I would say is Russia is not going to stay in in Ukraine or want anything to do with Ukraine as a nation. What they've made a very some pretty controversial points of saying we're going to demilitarize it, and they already have to a large extent. And they also came out and actually made the statement we want to denazify. I don't know exactly what they mean by that, but. But obviously, there is a very strong neo-Nazi presence inside Ukraine that the West just tends to shovel under the carpet because it's a bit embarrassing to to discuss that. So coming on to the point of, okay, how long Russia's there, what their objectives are in totality is not clear. But they most certainly aren't going to stay there. They don't want to be saddled with Ukraine as a nation. They're making a point to the West. and, And the number of points they're trying to make is, look, and I have made this point, and people in the West don't believe it, or most people, that Russia's militarily vastly superior to the West and the United States. What Russia's done is it sent a signal to the, to the NATO nations, who are now extremely nervous. Look, we can paralyze a whole nation's military capability in an hour and a half. Ukraine's not a small country in size. There's a lot of other NATO nations significantly smaller in geographical size. So they're making a point, we can do this, we can do it very clinically, we can do it very efficiently, then we can start to move the military in and we can cover vast swathes of land. I mean, there is, and I have had it confirmed to me, there's a lot of desertions coming from the Ukrainians because they don't
0: want to fight Russia. And, and, Paul, and Paul, for the, on that point, I wanted to bring that up is I, I... – and really surprised, and I think a lot of people were really surprised, how easily Russia was able to invade. I mean, I was hearing uh, reports that this would be the bloodiest battle. Russia would be bogged down. I mean, it looks like to me, I mean, this is very preliminary, right? This could change. We don't know how Ukraine's going to fight their insurgency. But, I mean, it looks to me like, one, a lot of the Ukrainian soldiers, you know, essentially gave up. Um, and two, it looks like just they just got so overwhelmed that Russia was able to move in. I mean, Ukraine is, you know, m- much more populated than Iraq, had a better army than Iraq had when the U.S. invaded. And it looks like Russia is about to take the country within probably the next 24 hours. I was absolutely shocked by that.
1: Yeah. can Can you hear me OK?
0: Yeah, we can hear you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, I'm not remotely surprised in this because Russia's military capability in all spheres is far stronger than the West would have anyone believe. And the other thing is there's a lot of Ukrainians that are not anti-Russian and they don't want to fight with Russia. There's there's a lot of kindred spirit between the two nations and and therefore it's not surprising a lot of them just surrounded or said, look, we don't want to fight. And just, you know, they've deserted the contact line. They've, I mean, there's, there's footage of them landing at airports or military installations and the Ukrainian army have just dropped their weapons and said, we're not interested. We don't want to fight.
0: And, and, and now, know Paul, Paul, let's, uh, let's talk about sanctions because you're the, yes. one, the one, you were the person who, um, I follow on this, uh, how will how much will the sanctions hurt and what has Putin done in terms of gold reserves, uh, foreign currency reserves to kind of make sure that those sanctions aren't really effective?
1: Well, first point we have to go back is to 2014 when the West put in a whole bunch of sanctions. The whole purpose from the United States' perspective was to economically cripple Russia in 2014. And, and, ef- and effectively trying to bog them down in a war in Ukraine that they thought would be like their Vietnam, which, of course, that's not going to be. So Russia's had eight years of dealing with this, and it's no coincidence that the moment that happened, what happened in a matter of months later was the power of Siberia won, high, you know, so-called Holy Grail Energy Deal, signed between the Russians and the Chinese. Uh, for, for obviously for LNG, all paid in non-dollar terms, I hasten to add. And that was the catalyst for Russia to go, well, if you're going to squeeze us out the dollar system and sanction us with our European colleagues, as they call them, then we're going to look for alternatives. We're, we're going to de-dollarize. And if we can't trade with our European partners, we'll go and get import substitution. We'll go and trade with other countries in the world. And sell them, you know, of you know commodities, etc. And that's what they did. And all, also in non-dollar terms as much as possible, they've dumped all their treasuries. I mean, officially they have three point nine billion dollars of treasuries, which you and I know is nothing. They, yes, they've also, whenever they did get dollars, they just dumped them straight away into euros, gold. Buying assets, whatever it was, but they were—they've been on this de-dollarization path for a long time. They sell energy to Europe in euros. I mean, if you if you go and look at um, uh, Gazprom, they only quote their contracts in rubles or euros. They don't—they don't quote it in dollars. Rosneft, all in euros. So they've been going through this process for a long time. The other point worth making is. And this shocks a lot of people. Russia has enormous gold reserves, like China does. Russia's had huge gold reserves when the Tsars were in, were obviously the the monarchy ruling Russia. Those gold reserves never got stolen. And they've been accumulating huge amounts of gold ever since. They have, in reality, about 40,000 tons of gold. Not... Three thousand, five thousand, ten thousand. They have forty thousand tons of gold. They effectively have no net debt. But in reality, their debt to GDP, for, which isn't really really worth even mentioning, but as as a figure, it's about fourteen percent, something like that. But they have about six hundred billion dollars worth of, of forex reserves. That includes gold, which they think people thinks about two and a half thousand tons or so. But Obviously, no dollars. They have euros, a lot of uh, yuan. So they've been preparing for a de-dollarized world for a long time. And I broke the story maybe five years ago and said that Russia and uh, China are preparing a that an alternative financial system, meaning it's outside the dollar, because. The people who I know that they spoke to in the 90s pointed out that when you have the financialization of Western economies, the dollar, and by extension, fiat currencies in the West were toast. It was the beginning of the end. And lo and behold, 2022, here we are. are, It is the end, or or certainly not the beginning of the end, but a long way accelerating through that process where fiat currencies are just being printed into oblivion and debased. So... They're already in this situation where they've created a financial system. It's been fully tested five years ago, which I tweeted way back then. No one believed me. Everyone said, no, this isn't reality. And then what do they quietly come out with before Christmas? We're working on an alternative financial system. No, they're not working on it. It's already tested. When the Chinese or the Russians tell you they're working on something, it means it's already developed. So, and then of course, I had people going, oh, hang on, you did mention this years ago. But so this is not a new creation. There's also the digital yuan and the digital ruble, which can be utilized in international trade. It's not to replace the existing yuan or the existing ruble. It basically means one digital ruble equals one, what you might call conventional ruble or existing ruble. And the same with the yuan. It and can be fall- used in. Yep. You now,
0: Paul, just uh, so my viewers understand, let's uh, break this down just a little bit uh, sure. into, into a more simple term. So basically what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Russia and China have made an agreement now to uh, uh, conduct transactions and trade with each other in a way that avoids the U.S. dollar. And the purpose of that is to be able to avoid the punishment from U.S. sanctions. Is that correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, and they've been able to do this for a long time. They also have the Mir payment system in Russia and the SIPS in, in China. But this new financial system is is means that the ASEAN nations will will bolt into it, the Eurasian Economic Union, etc. Large parts of the world that are already effectively in a multipolar world. They're trading also increasingly in non-dollar terms. And, you know, we've seen just without going into too much detail just in recent weeks how Brazil have, have, and, and Argentina have signed up to to some major agreements with the Russians and the Chinese. This is this acceleration of a post kind of unipolar world, which is dying on its feet and the birth or the ongoing process of the development of a multipolar world. And so, yeah, they are insulated against this. Now, okay, the issue is where we are today. Now, thus far, all the sanctions they're proposing are just meaningless. I mean, the U.S. has come out claiming we're going to sanction banks that are they're already sanctioned. We're going to sanction anyone from, from dealing in Russian debt. Well, they do already. So it was all kind of just vacuous nonsense. It's just kabuki theater politics. It's trying to convince everyone – They've been tough. The issue is that and the fear is that Western nations might do some very harebrained things like, for example, cutting Russia off from SWIFT or deciding. So
0: for my uh, listeners who don't know, can you just very quickly describe what SWIFT is and why that would be such a big deal?
1: Well, obviously, traditionally, as we know, in the kind of unipolar world, the world was trading everything in dollar terms. So all transactions go through SWIFT as a payment system. And, and that's how the U.S. was able to sanction nations in the sense that, you know, if they, if they want to sanction you because in dollar terms, then they've done it with countless nations for all manner of reasons. Iran's one obvious example. They've done it for decades. So if you avoid the SWIFT payment system. Then, of course, you can evade Russian uh, U.S. sanctions and you can carry on trading relatively normal. Okay, it's not straightforward. But if you were to take the option of saying, and we'll give an example of this, that because some Western leaders don't seem to comprehend the gravity that if you cut Russia off from SWIFT, for example, quite legitimately, they could then say to Europe, well, we can't, we're not going to trans, you know, transport the, the, the LNG to Europe because you can't pay us anymore. You can't settle your contracts. We're not going to give you the gas for free on the promise that you'll pay us when, when we get hooked back into SWIFT. So the risk to Europe is no energy. They would just cut off completely. They can't replace that energy, even though the US likes to think we can just cut off the Russian energy supply. And 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 somehow we can magically produce the the same amount of LNG if we go to Qatar or somewhere else in the world. It's simply not possible. If you if they get cut off, the consequences are going to be catastrophic for Europe. You're going to have massive energy inflation. There's going to be no energy. There's going to be energy blackouts, energy shortages, and you're and effectively you're going to plunge Europe into into relative darkness and. Economically, financially, it would collapse pretty quickly. And that's not an exaggeration. That's just a statement of reality. Notwithstanding all the other issues of all the commodities that are essential that Russia sells to the rest of the world, like fertiliser. I mean, if you cut them off, Russia would just go, well, you're not having any fertilizer anymore, You or palladium or aluminium, or the whole raft of, um, of commodities that Russia sells to the Western world. They could just cut them all off and say you're not having them because you can't pay us. So that would have serious effect- catastrophic effects because we've already got enormous energy uh, price inflation, partly due to the fact of this crisis.
0: Oh hey Paul, you cut up you cut out again.
1: Hi, can you hear me okay?
0: Yeah. Like, yeah, the last thing that uh that we heard was we were saying there's uh severe energy price inflation, um partly because
1: Oh yeah, whole green energy debacle where they, they shut down nuclear power plants and all this kind of in like Germany, for example. and started to move to renewable energies and, you know, the wind wasn't strong enough and they just didn't think this strategy through. So if you've already got massive hikes in energy price, if you cut the energy supply off as it is, you're going to have a problem that's 10 times the size. And the other sort of flip side to that is there was Nord Stream 2, which, you know, was if Merkel had still been Chancellor, it would have been approved and rubber stamped. But there was all this dithering going on after Merkel left and then Germany's come out. They haven't said it's abandoned. They've kind of gone, we're suspending it we're, because at some point they're going to have to switch this back on. But what was it? The German foreign minister, Bierbach came out and went. And this is an incredible statement to say for us as the German government, I think they said it was important to show that for a free and democratic Ukraine, which it isn't, we are willing to also accept consequences for our national economy. Peace and freedom in Europe don't have a price tag. Absolute staggering, because if Germany switched on Nord Stream 2, the cost of energy in Europe would drop significantly, which at the end of the day, energy, as we all know, is the heartbeat of all economies. If it's a lot cheaper, then your whole economy is going to be cheaper. Everything you produce is cheaper. Your heating and lighting is cheaper, just everything, because energy is the engine of the world we live in today. So, I mean, this kind of almost virtue signaling is is threatening Germany with enormous problems, as we've seen recently. The The producer price inflation was year-on-year year 25%. Well, if energy is more and more expensive, then imagine if they cut energy off, the producer price inflation could be, I'm guessing, 50 100%, who knows, maybe even higher. So it's that kind of level of stupidity that exists in Western nations that they're not thinking this through. If you cut, And the other argument would be Russia would probably deem cutting them off from SWIFT as a declaration of war. I mean, yes, and and, 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 Paul, and the consequence, right. you know, the consequences of that, I think, is pretty obvious. If and we shouldn't, uh, in any way, shape, or form, not believe that to be possible, because Russia, okay, we're not going to have World War Three because of Ukraine. Absolutely not, because NATO is simply not going to get involved. They made it very clear because they don't want to face off against Russia, not because of the. The obvious consequences, but the US pulled all their forces out because if the Spatsnats and the Chechens face off, they—I'm sorry to be so blunt—but there'll be an awful lot of Americans going home, uh, not alive anymore, to put it politely. And that's why they don't want that kind of optics. So, but setting,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, going back to your comment on, on Swift, I, I, I have heard, and I think there has been statements from russian uh politicians have said cutting them off swift is essentially a declaration of of war um why why would that be cons- why would you why do you think russians would consider that a declaration of war is that because it basically shuts them down from being involved in the world economy
1: well it's as much as anything it's kind of more symbolic i mean we've already said they can get around some of this process but yes it would impact them and but the, but but effectively, you know, it's just symbolic. It's a bit like I oh, tell you a story. In 2016, the Chinese were going to announce that they were going to launch a gold back yuan, and um, the, the Americans turned around to them at that point in time and said, "If you announce that, that is a declaration of war." And the Chinese went, "Okay, we're not going to do it at this point in time." Now that will change in the future because militarily. The whole landscape in the world's changed because of Russia's hypersonic tech, missile technology and, by extension, China. But there are certain things that would be deemed a declaration of war, and cutting Russia off from Swift would be perceived to be that. Now, does that mean we have World War Three? Not necessarily. And is it? Could it be a bit of bravado with Russia? Possibly. The one thing Russia could do is for for an extended period of time. It could a get round the problem. It wouldn't sink the Russian economy. And the question is, what's going to sink first, Russia or Europe, or the the nations? Because if you start to cut out all the commodity <clears> the <throat> Russia exports to the world, because you're saying you're cutting them off, and okay, they can de-dollarize and they probably will. Then what about all the the wheat exports, the corn exports? Uh-huh. What about all uh, the raw materials we've said, palladium, aluminium, oil, gas? It's going to have a very, very serious effect globally as well. And in fact, to cut Russia off from SWIFT could actually really be the final kind of nail in the coffin lid of the U.S. unipolar world, because the world would see that then as, well, whatever the situation is and the problem that exists between the, the... the Russians and, in this case, Ukraine or, by extension, NATO, then already the world's kind of already de-dollarizing because it's sick of U.S. putting sanctions and regime change and color revolutions, et cetera, to anyone who doesn't kind of uh, literally worship at the altar of the dollar. That's because the dollar is a matter of national security. That's why they have wars and regime change, et cetera. So, but it it will be... the Um,
0: So essentially what you're saying is if cutting off Russia from SWIFT would be like the U.S. or NATO shooting itself in the foot because that would basically push or accelerate the de-dollarization of the the world. And that would essentially stop the U.S. from being able to use the U.S. dollar as uh, basically a weapon as the um, reserve currency.
1: Yeah, and the other point worth making is, as I said, you know, the Maidan happened in early twenty fourteen. The reason the US is is panicking and embarking on these kind of absolutely ludicrous geopolitical maneuvers, whether it's Taiwan and China or in this case Ukraine and Russia, is because the US, as an empire, is failing. The Western financial system's been creaking for a long time. We all know Western economies are basically just gigantic uh, debt bubbles, which has been the problem even pre two thousand eight, but particularly since two thousand eight with all cheap credit, etc. And we we're not going to discuss the financial aspect, but the West is in serious trouble, and the and this is a classic thing where the US is is going well. Okay, we are in serious trouble, and it's not. Let's start a war because that will deflect away from the problem. What it is is the the major threat to the U.S. now, or the perception is Russia and China because it's the multipolar world. They're de-dollarizing, they're building an alliances all over the world, and they're challenging the unipolar world or what's left of it. But the perception is, well, if we can get Russia into this bind, then we could economically destroy it we might get rid of putin in the process we might get a change of attitude in russia that will move away from the multipolar world and and reorientate itself to some degree with russia and then of course the other side to to this is then by extension that will probably have an impact on china and china would then feel well we we can't do this on our own as it so it might change the perception and in the short term It might also, because there's a lot of de dollarization going on in the world that the West doesn't want to admit to, that it might make people move back into the dollar. You know, if I look at me, you know, people start buying treasuries, they may see the dollar potentially as a safe haven and it pulls people back into the dollar sphere. And maybe it will allow the West or the US to get over what, because there's certainly blips in every six months or so. They have to try and avert a crisis. It, generally, there was something bubbling around last September and March before that, et So It's always on a kind of six-monthly cycle. So we're getting towards March again. So there may be a perception, well, we can actually drag people back into the dollar sphere again. They may start to lose confidence in, in Russia or confidence in the ruble and, by extension, confidence in China. And there's no doubt they'll be nibbling again with regards to uh, Taiwan. And China there, I mean it's a similar thing. Let's try and create this conflict between Taiwan and China. Okay, they're separated by the Malacca Strait, but but you know, they're still neighbors. And by you know, by if you flip that over, what's there's not a lot of difference with what's going on with Ukraine and, and Russia. And Ukraine's just a, a stick to beat Russia with, and Taiwan's a stick to try and beat China with. So there is clearly For them to to do this, if Russia, uh, sorry, the US was in ascendancy, if the US economy was strong, the dollar was strong, the unipolar world was strong, the United States would not be playing this high-risk game with Russia in any way, shape or form, because at the end of the day, what would be the point? There'd be no, but when a nation's desperate, like the US is desperate, they will do Ridiculous things. or make dangerous policy decisions. I mean, look at Kazakhstan. They were behind the attempted color revolution. It failed. I mean, the CSTO went in with the Russians, and they got rid of the problem within a matter of a few days, and that was the end of that. So they've been nibbling. They tried it in Belarus, as we know, uh, in 2020, and that failed. Uh, There's been flashpoints in the Balkans that haven't really ignited properly. The U.S. tried it with China and Hong Kong. So there's been this precedent for for three years or more where the U.S. is trying to ignite problems. And as I say, you don't do that if you're strong in, in the ascendancy. You do it when you perceive yourself to be in a weak position. And the U.S. is now in a very weak position. And the fact that they've been trying to orchestrate these problems on Russia's doorstep, like there was Armenia and Azerbaijan, where there was a kind of war for a short period of time, the U.S. were behind that, so there's this precedent, and in the vicinity of Russia and trying to stoke tensions with Taiwan and China and Hong Kong and China. I mean, you know, certainly, the Hong Kong uprising had the U.S.'s fingerprints all over it. So there is a precedent. These are statements of fact; they're not assertions on my behalf. You, this is proven. You can see the same MO operating everywhere. So. Going back to the point with regards to to sanctions, the Russians can deal with this. The argument will be how long can Europe and the Western world survive if Russia cuts them off? Because my argument would be if if I was Russian I got cut off from Swiss, I'd go, okay, no, Germany uh, and Europe is getting any energy. Just switch the taps off, go, what are you going to do now? And we're still in, in winter, effectively. And, of course, how does industry operate without any energy? They'd be in serious trouble. They've got enough economic problems since uh, since the pandemic with all high inflation and all these kind of illusionary economic growth that, that the West tries to keep projecting and convincing itself there isn't enormous economic financial problems. So they're going to sink before Russia. Russia is energy secure, it's food secure, it has enormous internal resources. And with all due respect, Russians are a lot more hardier at dealing with adversity than Western. Oh, if you go back to when the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia was a pretty horrendous country to live in for quite a few years, and until it started to kind of go through the transition phase from the Yeltsin era into, obviously, when Putin became president in '99, and they've gone back through history. It's kind of hardwired into their DNA. In the Western nations. As my father-in-law jokes, the West uh, uh, has an aneurysm when they can't get their Wi-Fi signal. It's that kind of mentality where we're not really capable of dealing with that degree of, of adversity, as, as, as we know, because we're not used to having to deal with that. So I think the argument is if they go too hard on sanctions, it will backfire on the West. And Whereas in 2014, there was an attempt to take down Russia and you know, it failed uh, for all the reasons we've discussed. In 2022, putting sanctions on Russia and the world's a very different place, the blowback is significantly greater than the effect it would have on Russia. And that's something the West doesn't understand, but then there's all the politicians who have to kind of keep shouting and sounding like we're being tough on Russia, even if privately we don't mean it. But if they have serious about having sanctions and impose serious sanctions they risk the security of of the west because there is that option that they may be deemed to be a declaration of war the other side to it is they're going to create their own economic financial problems because just as a simple thing if the price of oil keeps going up if oil hits 130 140 you know dollars a barrel you're going to start blowing up derivatives markets and there's a chain event cascading effect that then you could, you could cause enormous ripples. And notwithstanding what it would do to the economy with, with oil at that price, anyway. And Russia will still find routes to sell oil. It will, I mean, it's like Iran. Iran effectively is sanctioned from the rest of the world, but Iran sells enormous amounts of oil on the black market, millions of barrels a day. And, and and is able to do it, so I don't doubt Russia will certainly find a market for oil. And here is the problem: How long is it before someone blinks in the West and goes, "We're actually we can't do this. We, we're going to have to reach an agreement. We're going to have to get rid of the sanctions. We're going to have to allow them a back into Swift or just not this idea. We can sever, it, you know, uh, energy ties with them. Switch it back on. By that point, Russia might go, "No, we're not switching it back on." You've defaulted, you, you've you reneged on your contract, and we find alternative uh, sources to to sell our energy to. And, and the West and shouldn't Paul, be under any illusion that that's possible.
0: And now, Paul, so basically what you're saying, so I, I, I mean, from what you're saying, I don't think Germany will go along with this plane because essentially if Germany pushes sanctions too far on Russia – Russia could, you know, metaphorically turn off the tap and now Germany has no natural gas and no oil or very much reduced amounts mm-hmm. of gas and oil. And so I don't think I think they know that and I I do not think they would shoot themselves in the foot. I mean they will that you will have uh, severe severe domestic repercussions in parts of Europe if the Russian gas and oil is turned off.
1: Yeah, I mean, just quite simply, it could result in societal breakdown. And at the end of the day, you know, what are they going to do? I mean, and this is the problem. Yeah, you can rightly, okay, there's been huge provocation from from the U.S. and NATO side, which is seen. you know, they're not trying to wash their hands and go, oh, it's got nothing to do with this. This is Russian aggression. And to the Western eyes, they can sell that. And probably quite legitimately to most people. Here is the problem: if they then go and implement sanctions, then that's an aggressive move towards Russia. And if the consequences of those sanctions are, the you know, like we said, energy gets cut off, or whatever the repercussions are, and then the economy starts collapsing, they're going they can't really sell that, you know, to, to the German people or the French, the the, the Dutch, the Italians, or whoever. You know they because they'll the argument will be that was an aggressive move and Russia's responded and Russia's already come out and kind of said well we're going to impose our own sanctions and they'll be asymmetric but they will harm the United States now. When Russia talks like that, most people in the West go, oh, "That's a load of nonsense." You, I think we should not be too dismissive when Russia says this that that they will have some plans up their sleeve because. They, it's very clear whether they were intending to invade uh, two months, six months ago. They have certainly have all the intelligence on Ukraine. They knew where all the military instru- installations were and infrastructure, etc. So they'll have had a lot of plans in place for all manner of scenarios. They will certainly have thought of the implications of sanctions by the United States and by extension Europe. And whoever else wants to join in in the sanctions, they will have thought about this long and hard and have some contingencies in place. My fear in the West is we just lack the caliber in terms of government. Governments were, I mean, they just come out with really, really embarrassing statements. I and mean, we had the issue of the UK Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, going. And, and okay, Lavrov shouldn't have done this. Well, he kind of set her a trap and talked about uh, Voronezh and Rostov, the oblasts, and saying, you know, about, about, you know, freeing those up from Ukrainian control. And, of course, they're part of Russia. And she said, that'll never happen. And then he had to point out to her, they're actually oblasts in Russia. So they were playing games. Now, you should never have a situation where that happens because it reflects very badly on Western nations. And I made the statement about Baerbock and talking about basically, oh, well, let's take a hit for the team, meaning, you know, if Ukraine suffers, so will we. These are not statements that should be made. So the West is looking, is lacking credibility. And it's, and they're not just, there's just a whole bunch of, of ministers and uh, foreign ministers and prime ministers and presidents who've come out with very, very, I feel infantile statements that shows that the West doesn't really have a grasp of the gravity of this now.
0: And, and the argument is, Paul, yep. would you would you agree with the statement that this that this day, that this week, that this time period is a historical turning point in the world? Um, the probably the beginning of the shift from uh, what people call a unipolar world, which is the U.S. basically being a hegemon to a multipolar world where Russia, China, and the U.S. all share power in their own spheres? I mean, is this this historical moment?
1: Yeah, I, well, I tweeted that today was effectively the end of NATO. I mean, NATO's now just the naked emperor. I mean, <laughs> because the the argument is, you know, <laughs> the Baltic Republics are looking at this going, well, they just walked into Ukraine. The U.S. moved everyone, all Russian personnel and military and, and diplomatic staff out of Ukraine. And back to we were not facing off against Russia. So the argument is, and they won't do this, but Russia might just then go, well, you know, or they may, the Baltic states, because they're very paranoid about Russia anyway. You know, what happens if Russia just moves into Latvia or something? Oh, what, do, is the, the U.S. going to do anything? And the truth of the matter is the U.S. will do nothing yeah they'd scream about it, threaten to to sanction russia into oblivion but and even though they're a NATO nation because the u s simply will not want to face off with the the Russians because it's a credibility issue because unfortunately, Russia would wipe the floor with the Americans if there was a conventional war. And because they simply have technology that is light years ahead, and people don't agree with me. But why is the world buying S 400s and not buying US missile defense systems? And well, why is well, you well, know,
0: that? Uh, mm-hmm. That that becomes negated when you discuss nuclear weapons, right? Because
1: oh no, but yes, but it, well, of course, but we're talking about missile defense systems, yeah, right, nuclear right. weapons capability. You mean, look how many people in the Pentagon have said. We can't compete with Russia's hypersonic missiles. We're effectively sitting ducks. The problem the U.S. has is missile defense systems on the west and east coast, uh, to be put it bluntly, useless. And if any missile attack was launched from via the South Pole, the U.S. has no defense whatsoever. They can, to some degree, manage it from the North Pole, but nothing via the South Pole. And so... The U.S. is never going to want to have a hot war with Russia, aside from the obvious reasons why no one would want a hot war with Russia. So it's a perception now, yes, that really NATO is being the, the whole European architecture for for security is being thrown out the window. And I made the point quite a f- quite a few years ago that that Ukraine was effectively the, the, the dagger to the heart of the U.S. Germany, the dollar, and history in the future would prove this, and that the Russians were playing a long game and they'd just wait for their moment, and this is their moment. And they don't care, as you say, and rightly they don't care about sanctions. The sanctions don't work on Russia. But it was it was an opportunity to say, A, you're not going to move um, – NATO any further east. It was also makes the NATO nations and Europe go, well, the US is is just is basically uh, not going to be able to defend us. I mean, look at Crimea, they did nothing. They've now walked into Ukraine. Russia's, uh, uh, sorry, the Americans have done nothing. So it's the perception. This is all about perception management. And also, and now, it Paul, might, uh, this, sorry, go
0: on. Uh, yes, Paul. So, uh, if you were advising the West, I mean advising NATO or the U.S., what would you advise them to do at this moment? I mean, it sounds like the best thing to do at this moment is, for them, for the U.S., is really just to do nothing. I mean, that's what it's sounding like. What do you think? Right. If <laughs> on the on right,
1: let's just assume someone would listen and and agree in principle, okay, that to what I'm suggesting. What I would do, if I was if I was the United States now, I'd go, look, let's get the Ukrainians round a table and the Americans, and you get the French and the Germans or whoever you want, and say, okay, let's have an immediate ceasefire. Let's just pause everything. Let's get everyone round the table and implement the Minsk agreements, which gives Donbass autonomy. And and just de-escalate everything, and uh, but on the agreement that the US also says no NATO membership for Ukraine and all those things, that's the first thing. What and and that's a huge aspect. That's what needs to be done. Then the next situation is that the Americans need to realise that US Germany is over, that the empire and the dollar is is toast, and it's just a matter of time before the Western financial system implodes and Western economies implode. So what they need to do is have a kind of, not Bretton Woods, but a kind of Bretton Woods style kind of summit that says, okay, what are we going to do? How can we collectively, i.e., and it's not just China, Russia, and, and the United States, but, and not just but just a collective approach, but let 's just focus on the u s initially and say okay the u s needs massive internal restructuring it needs to have a manufacturing base it needs to be in a situation where it can attract inward investment again how, what How do we do that because at the moment the u s can 't do this the way the way the dollar system i mean basically until they now no one buys dollar debt, but in the past. Everyone just got worthless bits of paper and gave the U.S. free dollars and they went and spent them. Well, that's not going to happen. So, okay, who's going to lend the U.S. the money to rebuild the infrastructure of the United States? How is it going to attract investment? How is it going to become a productive economy again? And it's going to need money from somewhere. It can't, like people suggest, just print trillions of dollars because – that's how you're just going to create massive inflation. And in the end, you'll create hyperinflation. You can't do that. There aren't magical solutions. But the U.S. needs to find a way that it can restructure its economy, sort out the myriad of massive internal problems, and it's become a trusted partner in the world. But the problem is this is a big sell because politically there's been just endless decades of political capital that rushes the enemy. Now it's China. To try and switch that is political suicide. The other problem is convincing people in nations. Now, there was an interesting thing where a lot of Americans rightly said, this isn't our problem. That's really encouraging because you're going to sell the idea that we're going to have this reproachment and bring an end to this kind of uh, idea of the perennial bogeyman in Russia to justify, of course, the existence of NATO. Because if Russia wasn't the enemy, NATO wouldn't exist. And neither for that matter would the U.S. have any reason to be in Europe. And and therefore, Eurasian integration, which is the big fear the U.S. has that Germany rotates east and integrates with Russia, which is partly why this is happening now, because they're trying to sever Germany and Russia apart. And one way you do that is Nord Stream 2, Nord Stream 1, et cetera. But the point is, get the Americans around the table and start to go, OK, we have got enormous problems what are we going to do about it? How can how can we collectively work so rather like the multipolar world? Russia-China signed deals. It's win-win cooperation. Have win-win cooperation with the United States. And make, as I say, and people go, I'm very critical of the U.S. Well, I am not critical of the people, but I've always made the point for years. Make America a great nation, but amongst equals. The world will enormously benefit from the U.S., Works on that basis and the world can enormously benefit the US in the process. So it is win-win cooperation. And, and make America a nation that the world actually looks up to, because most of the world sadly doesn't. And that's not a reflection on the American people or anything to do with the American people. It's administrations, it's the perception of this endless US Germany, endless uh, sorry, uh, US uh, regime change, colour revolutions, and just trying to assert their authority on the world, which is, of course, rapidly vaporising. So that's what I would suggest to do, but to try and make that happen in reality is very difficult. So, unfortunately, it may come to the point where the US will simply have no choice but to do it because... Inevitably, Western economies are going to crater. Western financial system is going to crater. There is no solution, and it may then take when everything's in total chaos, where there is no choice, then but uh, to talk to the Chinese and the Russians. Now, one point worth making is: everyone goes, "This is a global problem," and and the rest of the world is going to collapse with the West. Well, problem with that is, look at Russia. Russia's pretty insulated. It has no net debt. It can feed itself. It's got energy. It's been through through numerous periods in history, notably, as we said, the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was very difficult, but they got through it. This isn't going to be as bad for Russia, whatever, when this whole kind of Western financial system, and in inverted commas, all collapses effectively. And we have to be careful, of course, what we mean by collapse as well. The issue with China, everyone goes, China's got all this enormous debt. Problem is China has very little external debt, and a lot of its internal debt is state owned enterprises owning other state owned enterprises money. Yeah. You know, which cancels out. The government owes the government debt. China's internal problems is not debt related to their debt. China's got other problems with its demographics, but then so pretty much most of the world now, or certainly the Western world too. Uh, but we're not here to discuss China specifically today, but the issue is that they're far better insulated because, again, Dave, China's gone through an enormous de-dollarization process. It, the claim is it has a trillion uh, US dollars of U.S. treasuries. It doesn't. It's probably 400 billion and maybe even less than that. And China's gone through this whole process of buying assets up all over the world, which it owns, and, and it has an enormous, you know, it officially has $3 trillion of you. The Forex reserves, it's actually about $12 trillion in reality. It has 40,000 tons or so of gold, enormous um, uh, reserves, strategic reserves the world doesn't know about for all manner of things. I mean, it now owns, which it shouldn't do, but about 60% of global wheat. And that's just food commodities. There's enormous stockpiles of silver, aluminium. And and then, of course, China exports a whole bunch of things like rare earth metals that the rest of the world depends on. So China's going to have problems. It's, it's not, but it, but it won't suffer the same consequences.
0: Oh, Paul, I think you uh, you got cut off again. We'll give Paul a second to get back on. So for all of you listeners, I hope you're. Uh, yeah, I think I'm
1: back on again. Yep.
0: Yeah. And now, Paul. Yeah. I want, what I wanted to ask you was, um, so I heard they, uh, someone on the news, I forget what channel, referred to uh, Russia as having built a quote economic fortress for themselves. And so you know, you know that I uh, cover, uh, uh, you know, investing and things like that. We obviously, you know, cannot give financial advice. We don't give financial advice but you know if what you're saying comes to pass meaning there is a collapse of the u.s financial system there's a de-dollarization i mean what are you what are you doing what are you telling your readers to do what are you advising people to do i mean foreign currencies gold i mean what's going on
1: well yeah the truth i don't do financial advice i mean i in my own podcast i discuss like okay these are things to consider now some people have I've looked at that and made decisions on the basis of what I've said. That's up to them. But I don't I don't tell anybody invest this. I mean, I'm not – I mean, I used to do a lot of uh, trading and stuff. I don't really do it. I mean, I make odd trades. I mean, I'll just be – this is my position. And um, the, for me, I think everybody knows I'm not a fan. Well, I do like cryptocurrencies in the future, and I think there's a big marketplace – But I have no interest whatsoever in Bitcoin. I think everybody who knows me on Twitter can very easily understand my perspective on that. But let's park Bitcoin. I've made it very clear over the years, for me, you have to have an insurance policy against everything, uh, whatever the outcome. Because none of us can have a a crystal ball to know exactly exactly what the fallout of of this kind of collapse and in inverted commas of the Western financial system. So my argument is you want an insurance policy. For me, the insurance policy is gold and silver. And I've long owned it, I've long held it. And that's for me is is just a protection. It's not an investment. I'm not trying to say Well, if gold goes to $2,500, i am going to sell it because it's just a protection. And I'll use an example, which I do, to illustrate owning it for me is purchasing power and protecting your wealth. And just to give you an example, and it's not anything, I'm not saying gold will go to this price, but I use a very simple metric. Let's just say you want to buy a house in somewhere in the U.S. for $200,000. And let's say gold, just to keep the math simple, was $2,000 an ounce. So currently it would cost you a hundred ounces of gold to buy the house. Let's project in the future because the housing market is, is another bubble. So quite legitimately there in dollar terms and let's, well, okay, we have to wind some major wrinkles out here, but to keep the math simple, let's say then in the future that a house was, was priced at $150,000 and, that is not unreasonable to suggest in the current housing bubble that that could be a reality. Now, let's just use simple terms. I'm not saying gold goes to this price, or, but let's just say gold went to $5,000 an ounce in the future. Then, if you're holding gold when we go through all this, these huge financial problems and upheaval, your purchasing power means you can then go and buy the same house for 30 ounces of gold and not a 100. And you can adjust the figures pro rata one way or the other. That's why for me, it's a protection of wealth and also your purchasing power. I'm not going to hold them forever in a day. there will come a point, not now, but in the future where I would then go and buy assets again, because the purchasing power will, will mean that I'll be able to buy assets in relative terms cheaper. And that's why I only, I'm not interested in, in trying to trade gold price or silver. I don't, I mean, I make odd trades, maybe four or five a year for me that are nailed on certainties. I don't publicly discuss them or anything because that's not what I do and I'm not here to kind of steer people. I mean, yeah, I've been very vitriolic about Bitcoin, but I always say you can make enormous fiat profit from it. I'm not telling people when to buy and when to sell, but just be aware that that's all it is, a vehicle for fiat speculation. So, yeah, it could go to 100000 or 300000 but equally could go to to ten thousand and be careful on that basis but i'm not telling people how to invest but that's my i mean can i look at things on a day on a sort of day-to-day basis and things i've done in the past yeah i mean on you know, but but i don't make predictions it's not something i do and it's you know i'm not here and it's not financial advice obviously but I don't get into that because I, you know, I find that if I do that, then things don't work out. Then I kind of, and people do take my advice and I kind of feel uh, a sense of responsibility. So I've made my position clear. With regards to gold and silver, I've been correct for nine years because I never go, well, now gold's hit this price, it's off to the moon or silver hits this price and it's off to the moon. I've always said, the way you'll get proper price discovery in gold and silver is when the West is effectively drained of physical metal. And that doesn't mean there's no physical metal. It just means at some point the paper markets are not going well. They, they won't be able to deliver because there might be a Ukraine moment or something else in the future where there's enormous hike and people want physical delivery and they can't you know, manage physical delivery. You get a force majeure moment that breaks the paper market. So it's always, for me, an issue of there comes a point when there's undoubtedly there are paper markets. I mean, it's not physical. And the paper market, which is the illusionary market, gives way to the physical market. Then we get proper price discovery. And at some point, that will happen. But I don't make predictions as to when that happens. I keep looking for things and observing things. But at some point, we will get true price discovery. I've people asking me, well, why is, gold, why is gold and silver price suppressed? And, you know, I know people disagree. I'm sorry, I think it's irrefutable. We see price suppression. And the, the fundamental reason is it's a matter of confidence in the dollar. We go back to the point that dollar is a matter of national security. So they'll have wars, et cetera, to defend the dollar. Well, if you imagine... Gold being currently what, 1930 or whatever it is, because it's gone down a bit from earlier on. At the moment, there'll be some interest because of what's going on with Ukraine, that people might want to buy physical metal. But if we say, for argument's sake, had true price discovery, and gold was currently $2,500 an ounce, you would have massive institutional interest. They are not interested so much as buying it at 18, 1900, they'll buy at 2,500 you'd be a stampede out of fiat into into uh, gold because the perception is there isn't confidence in the dollar anymore because the price is what it is. And that is the thing that they don't want to allow to happen because it's all about perception. It doesn't matter whether the dollar's printed into oblivion. In reality, it's a matter of confidence. It's all a confidence game. As soon as the confidence ebbs out the dollar, then you've got enormous problems. So by artificially suppressing the price. It gives the impression, well, actually, the dollar's okay. Uh, okay, we've had all this dollar printing, and people don't think it's creating any inflation. Well, here we are today. There's the proof. The reason it didn't prior to 2020 is because they kept the inflation in the bubbles. So they kept it in the housing market, in, in equities, in bonds. They, they basically ring-fenced the... Um, this inflationary bubble inside Wall Street banks, etc., the financial system. Once they started printing money because of the pandemic, it then went into the real world. That's why, and once it's in the real world, they can't control it, and that's why we've now got inflationary problems. Not entirely okay. There is a bit more to it than that, but in very broad terms, that's why we now have inflationary problems.
0: And now, Paul. So, now, Paul. And now Paul um, uh, just this just came across my screen here. Uh basically what we were talking about. So it says, uh, so Dmitry Kuleba, he's the uh, foreign affairs minister for Ukraine. He said, this is his tweet. It's the exact quote. He said, I will not be diplomatic on this. Everyone who now doubts whether Russia should be banned from SWIFT has to understand that the blood of innocent Ukrainian men, women, and children are on their hands. And then in all caps, it says, ban Russia from SWIFT now. So yeah, it looks I mean, like yeah, they're yeah. Pushing that, and that's scary.
1: Yeah, but the, well, I wouldn't worry about what the minister says in in Ukraine because that's not going to influence anything. I mean, you know, the, the, we're in a situation where there is a war. I mean, Ukraine will do anything to try and you know convince anyone that they you know action should be taken against uh, against Russia. What he needs to start to to also understand is that if they did that. And Russia cuts off the gas supply. What are they? they're not going to have any gas, and they're not going to get transit fees. Their economy is already basically a basket case. So that's just that that kind of moment of we need to do something to try and deflect uh, problems onto as much as possible onto Russia. And okay, there's some justification in Western eyes for doing that. So let's make these bombastic comments, but in reality, does it mean anything? No, I mean. At the moment, if you're in the Ukrainian government, you're in blind panic mode. I mean, who knows what's actually going through their minds, whether they think Russia going to be an occupying force forever. What is their political position? Because I mean, there's an argument, given everything that's happening, how can the Ukrainian government survive this? And it's going to be very difficult um, that for them to do that. So yeah, there's all manner of things. I've I've heard it for longer than I care to remember with all sorts of high-octane comments from government ministers. The reality is, well, at least you would hope that some sensible heads inside Europe and the U.S. would go, okay, let's assess the impact of cutting them off from SWIFT. The only way I would say the U.S. would do this is if literally the Western financial system, and they seem to keep behaving this way, Is on are literally on a knife edge now, and that might be the only reason they would try and do this. Otherwise, I don't think they would. Obviously, have to look at this situation and go, "Hang on, the ramifications of this." You know, some of the things we've just discussed. But yeah, I wouldn't. I don't worry too much about what Ukrainian ministers say. I mean, one minute Zelensky was going, "Let's get Russia around the table and um, and try and resolve this." Next breath. What, they're trying to tell the Americans to come in next breath. We need nuclear weapons. You know, he's, he's just all over the place because he's in constant kind of fear mode. And that's understandable. I mean, if you look at him, he, he was a rich, and it's no, he was a comedian originally. He became president. I mean, it's a very unlikely kind of route into politics. And, and I think at times he's way out of his depth. That's not a criticism. It's just if I went into politics now, I'd be way out of my depth as any of us would who've not really been part of that process. So I I, I don't pay too much attention. I, I, I look for actions rather than words, and because every five minutes someone's got something to say. I mean, you know, they'll come out with strong words out of NATO or European nations, but that's politics. If you don't say that, then people will be on them going, but you're not condemning Russia. It's interesting, ironically, the nations who haven't condemned Russia of Which there are many, but two in principle: the 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 West for some weird reason, particularly with China. I don't know why they thought China would uh, criticize Russia because China and Russia are joined at the hip. There's all these illusions that it's a marriage of convenience. It's not, or the idea that there's the that they've got these border disputes in the Far East. I mean, in 2004 they signed an agreement. It was all resolved, but the West for some reason doesn't seem to either recall that happened or just conveniently decides it never happened. Russia and China have an unbreakable bond, an unbreakable relationship. There is nothing that will sever the relationship between those two nations. It grows stronger. They have really do have a military alliance in reality. And the West can conjure up all kind of ideas. They're just It's just wishful thinking that those two nations are somehow it's a marriage of convenience. So China not criticizing them is one thing. But India has not come out and said anything. And bear in mind, India has a very strong relationship with Russia for decades. And also, you've got this very... I mean, obviously, China and India have problems with border disputes. But you've got the RIC format, Russia, India, China, where that relationship is really started to mature in the last three, four, six months or so. That could be very indicative of why India's not done this. So... This is very indicative that the West isn't going to get support from the Chinese and probably, I mean, the risk is, does India cave in at some point? They might do, but China most certainly won't cave in. And the idea that, that China would do and support the West is, is ridiculous.
0: And, and now Paul, like, another headline that just came across and we'll, we'll wrap up here. It says that uh, breaking Chernobyl Chernobyl power plant were captured by the Russian forces and just an hour before that, I saw that the Ukrainians said they were going to defend that to the last man. But it seems like it, it seems like their their military is just crumbling. I am shy. I thought I was hearing reports of the you know the greatest resistance, and they're going to fight to the last man. But it seems like uh, this is moving very swiftly in the Russian favor, and I uh, I am a little shocked by that.
1: No, it was it was always going to be the case. It's all bravado. The as we said, most of the Ukrainian army doesn't want to fight the Russians, and the, the the odd ones who do will do. But the it was an inevitability. There was never going to be any resistance, which is why I made a tweet nearly three years ago that said, "If Russia was serious about an invasion, they'd be at the gates of Kiev." in less than 24 hours. That wasn't a guess. That was just, for me, a reality because there wouldn't be resistance inside. But the point of Chernobyl, people are going, why is Chernobyl important? Well, everyone knows the story of the Chernobyl reactor in 1986, and obviously it's all set in concrete, but it's still potentially a risk. For me, the reason the Russians have made a beeline for for Chernobyl is because they perceive it to be a security risk, and someone might go, "Okay, as a last resort, let's just uh, let's just punch a hole in the side of that and cause a major radioactive leak." Mm. That's why they've made a beeline for that. They want to secure it and make sure nefarious forces inside Ukraine don't get some idea that they'll create an environmental catastrophe, and also, of course, try and blame it on the Russians in the process. Or maybe not blame it on the Russians, but that's why they've made a, a strategic point of heading to Chernobyl, because obviously it is. I mean, I don't know obviously how easy it would be because it is encased in enormous amounts of concrete, but I'm and and obviously protective measures. But I'm not sure whether that could easily be breached, and therefore, you know, if it was potentially a problem, it's a very good idea that somebody secures it and makes sure that nefarious elements don't decide to to try and create a huge environmental disaster and all the consequences of that through a leak from Chernobyl. So that's the rationale. But, yeah, the, the Ukrainian army was never going to stand up to, to the Russians in in any way, shape or form. I mean, you know, this, for whatever, again, people's perception is in the West, the Spetsnets uh, are an extremely ruthless fighting force. And if and if the Chechens are there, which Kadrov was with Putin a couple of weeks ago, the chances are there might be Chechens there. Nobody will want to face off against the Chechens. They're the scariest military in the world. They are the toughest, hardest. And to be brutally honest, if um, if you're in the Ukrainian army and you've got the Spetsnaz and the Chachins coming towards you, you don't want to be in the way of them. You oh, just. Oh, you...
0: and I yeah, I absolutely don't blame. Them. And I did see some videos of. Chechen, what they call Chechen special forces, supposedly in Ukraine, staging to go in. So I'm sure that uh, that they're there. I mean, who, you know, who in Ukraine would want to fight, uh, you know, the Russian army who has been, you know, living in in, in Siberia, tra- you know, their whole life. And I mean, just talk, ex- anyone who knows Russians just know they're extremely tough and hardy people. I mean, it's uh, it's 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 yeah, I. I I, I don't blame the Ukrainians at this point, especially because, you know, a lot of them have familial ties and their cousins and brothers. And why would they want to fight, you know, uh, a losing battle one, but also fight, you know, basically uh, peer and family. And so and the last thing, just uh, good news, I guess, from this perspective, is that so Germany, Italy, Hungary and Cyprus are blocking a decision to disconnect Russia from the SWIFT network following its full-scale military attack. So essentially uh, what you were saying uh, is that they're not going to cut Russia off of SWIFT. They know that that will just devastate themselves almost as bad as any other country.
1: Yeah, and it's just – it's ludicrous. I mean it's like getting a gun and shooting yourself in the head, the arm the torso and the leg and going, ow, that hurts. I mean, (laughs) or worse, you know, you just don't do it. So, I mean, in, in essence, the problem is, again, it's political capital. Everyone, a lot of people in Western nations are baying for blood. They want Russia cut off from everything. Cut them off from SWIFT. Just do everything. Just dismantle their economy, which but in reality trying to do that is a very different thing but when you've invested this enormous political capital politicians are frightened that they look weak in the eyes of their people so they've got a bit of a dilemma here but in reality they probably are just going to come along with some nonsensical meaningless um, sanctions that won't really affect anything but on paper look like they're going to harm the russia but the risk is, Russia said, we will take appropriate sanctions against the West, and they've mentioned the U.S. specifically, and they talk about asymm- a asymmetric. Well, it's rather like the technical military solution. No one in the West believed for one minute that in 90 minutes, bearing in mind the size of Ukraine, you could go in and wipe out their entire military Uh, infrastructure, aviation, air force, all, everything, effectively ground all the. They destroyed all their aircraft, everything in 90 minutes. The West doesn't work. That's a kind of technical military response. It's very clean. I mean, not defending war just in case it's an abomination. I never like to see a single gun fired in the world, but we're just talking in a military context of how the West perceives this. So, The West should be very worried when the Russians come out and go asymmetric response. What does that mean? What potentially could Russia do? And we shouldn't underestimate this and go Russia can't do anything because there's a really important point to make here. Many people in Western nations still think this is the 1980s when America was the dominant superpower, when America was financially dominant economically, and, and it really did you know, kind of not rule the world, but well into all intents and purposes, it did. And Russia then was a very, very poor, very backward nation. It was crippled by communism. Its economy had failed. Its financial system was a failure. Its military was pretty useless. And they still think Russia's like that. Russia's nothing like that. It's, in in fact, completely the opposite. Yes, it's got a long way to go in terms of, but it's already had 20 years resolving a lot of its problems. The same with China. There's a lot of people who see these iconic images from the 70s and think that's China. They couldn't be any further from the truth. Anyone who's been to China, I've spent quite a lot of time there, I've worked there in the past, would tell you China is nothing like the West believes. So we have to get over these kind of, ideas and the, this idea of that China's like this and Russia's like this, and, and the United States is like it was in the 80s. It's not. The United States is in a descending, is descending and Russia and China are ascending. That's just a statement of fact. It's not you know, saying Russia, China's better and it's just that's the reality on the ground. So when they say asymm- asymmetric, we have to be very careful what that means and bear in mind they do have an alternative financial system that works. How do we know? And there is certainly anecdotal evidence to suggest that there's other parts of the world like the AC nations who can hook into this, the Eurasian Economic Union could hook into it. A whole bunch of the world could just leave SWIFT, leave the dollar and go, we're abandoning it. We're not we're not utilizing it anymore. Goodbye that would have devastating consequences. I mean, the dollar would just collapse in a heap in the, in the blink of an eye. Now, that's an extreme example. Is it reality? We don't know. But therefore, we, we shouldn't be dismissive of what the capabilities are of China and Russia in response to what's going on. And and therefore, hopefully, in the Western world, they're not blasé and think they can't do anything. I think what Russia's done today in Ukraine has been a massive wake-up call for NATO nations, for Western nations, and Western people. I think it's been a very sobering experience. But for me, it was like, well, this was always going to happen. And Russia does have that capability. But I spent years telling people and everyone went, no, that's impossible. They can't have that capability. Well, we've seen today what that capability is. And we now need to start taking Russia a lot more seriously as a consequence of this and not being, you know, so dismissive that there are some backward nation who are still communist because Russia is not communist in any way, shape or form.
0: And now, Paul, um, you know, uh, just kind of, yeah, just wrapping up here, you know, I, I I appreciate so much you coming on the podcast, providing providing your perspective. I, I, I agree. I think it is a, a sobering moment. I think it's one that... Uh, I think when I say this is a changing uh, trajectory of the world, the history of the world, that that's not an understatement. I think this has ramifications way beyond just what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. And uh, those ramifications will be experienced, um, you know, here over the next few months and hopefully cooler heads prevail. Hopefully uh, uh, like you said, the Ukrainians and the Russians can sit at a table and figure out some sort of uh, agreement and, um You know, the U.S. doesn't do anything that creates an incentive for Russia to go, uh, you know, the hardest they can asymmetrically because they have capabilities to hack our financial systems, our our, uh, electronic grids. I mean, all kinds of really scary stuff. So hopefully cooler heads prevail. But if anyone wants to reach out to you, Paul, how do they how do they reach out to you? Uh, Let's talk about your your website and your Twitter and all that
1: all right, obviously, the the Twitter feeds at the dot com. Um, we're pretty active on that. We could be a lot. We are going to be more active. The website's kind of gone off a bit because in terms we used to put a lot of articles, but it's just the time because we do obviously our subscription podcast, which is the equivalent of five podcasts a week. Is about twenty minutes each, so you get one hundred and forty minutes a week. That's five every week less. At a downtime time round sort of the end of the year Christmas into New Year and we, it's very concentrated uh, what we do in each of them in terms of economics, finance geopolitics and just putting all the pieces of the puzzle of what's unfolding in the world and we kind of reached a, an interesting point where we've talked about things for years and it's all pulling together and now people are going okay now I can make sense of, of this jigsaw so It's very cheap, and we made it very cheap because we want to make it accessible. The fact it's cheap isn't because it's not high quality. It's only $4.75 a month compared to most of our peers. That's extremely cheap. We've never put the price up, but we believe that it should be accessible. We think it's great value for money. And, And people can subscribe for a year, which is even a bit cheaper. You get a month free. and. We've been cataloging things for, for since 2016 on this format, and I think we have a very good track record of understanding what's going on in, in reality. We don't have a Western perspective on things per se. I mean, unfortunately, I find I end up criticizing the West, but then there's not a lot in the West that we can be very positive about. I'm hoping in the future that will change. So it's really just cataloging the the demise of the unipolar world and the rise of the multipolar world and obviously we'd be very pleased if people would subscribe um we've actually had people who've subscribed from day one and then we have some people who've subscribed a few weeks ago who went i'm going to listen to every podcast well i good luck because we're up to 1370 now or thereabouts. so it's an awful lot but but we want to catalogue what's going on and, and help people to understand and we do say things that most people will often find pretty controversial but I think history proves that we're doing the right thing and, and as I said nothing would please me more the day when the US becomes a great nation amongst equals because the world will enormously benefit from this because I think there's huge potential in the US but the US internally is very badly lost its way and it's abused its a Germanic position. And now, unfortunately, it's abused it for far too long. And the world has increasingly had enough of this. And let's hope there's, a res- as you say, a resolution with Ukraine um, in, in some capacity that avoids as much confrontation and war, etc. But at some point, the US is going to have to face some very difficult challenges, and as will the rest of the West, and not just the West, of course. And hopefully, there can be some positive resolution. But I call it an event-driven scenario, and there's a lot of, of pointers to the fact that we're kind of getting towards what I would call the relative end of the end game. Does that mean today, tomorrow? No. It's event-driven, but but I think Ukraine is a big moment, um, and particularly what's happened in the last 24, 48 hours. And I think history will prove this to be a very defining moment where, there, the, there is going to be a point where, in in essence, really, the US is at war with Russia now. It's never going to be a, a hot war, but it's it's a war between the multipolar world and the unipolar world, and the US is determined never to let go of that. But unfortunately, as with all empires, they they don't last forever, and the US empire is in terminal decline and is facing. Uh, effectively a very, very uncertain future, but hopefully it will come out the other side in some point in the future, and it will be far stronger and, and resolve the internal problems. And I think briefly, I think Ron Paul, well, there was a Ron Paul Institute tweet where I effectively he said, well, this proves the US empire effectively doesn't exist anymore, and uh, thank goodness for that because we need to get on rebuilding our nation internally. And I I wholeheartedly agree With with that statement, because I think that's exactly the point the U.S. is at there.
0: Well, Paul, uh, this has been a very uh, sobering podcast for those living in the West. It's also been very enlightening, and uh, I'm very excited to have had you on. This is, uh, you know, we've had the most live listeners on this podcast that as we've had in any podcast, and so I truly, truly appreciate it. This is, uh, it's just a kind of. Ironic timing uh, for everything, you know, that you've been talking about for years has come to a head. So everyone, if you are interested, um, if you want a different perspective on things and if you want to, uh, uh, you know, receive insight before they happen in real time, go check out the Serious report. Um, Other than that, I appreciate all of you here listening on. I'm sure we're all going to be following the news about what's going on minute by minute uh, in, in Russia and Ukraine. And so. Um, you know, just pray for peace and pray that uh this, this gets settled quickly and, you know, the lives that are going to be lost on both sides. So, everyone, thank you so much. Paul, thank you again. And I will see you next week. All right. Bye-bye, everyone.
1: Yeah, goodbye.